Amen. Amen. The Lord has been so good, so good to lead us over these years. I don't know if y'all caught the announcement, but 10 years, 10 years the Lord has been leading this church. And every step of the way, we've never been alone. We've never been alone. God is with his people. He's with us. And we're so, so grateful. Well, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, If you're new around here, again, I want to welcome you. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Glad you can be with us today. Glad you can uh, worship with us. And and if you're new to the faith or or trying to figure out what you believe, we're glad you're with us uh, to explore Christ uh, in community. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 18 is where we will read. However, if you haven't prayed for me this morning, now's your chance. I'm going to try to cover chapter 13 through 18. You heard that right. It's one long story. So we're going to read the end of the story, and then we're going to back up, and we're going to pray that we make it all the way back to the end. Uh, So may the Lord be with us. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 18, let's pause for a moment. I want to invite you to just pause your heart in silence and uh, prepare our hearts to receive from the Lord his word. Second Samuel 18, verse 31. Hear the reading of God's word. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, It is well, or is it well, with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today into the wilderness, into the wilderness. Let's pray before we begin. Father, Uh, We're grateful for your word. We're thankful that we serve a God who speaks. We serve a God who's revealed himself. And so, Lord, we ask that you would once again speak to us in your word today. May your spirit transform our hearts, make us new into the image of Christ, more and more like your son. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, England, is famous as the home of the Prime Meridian. It's a remarkable location in the world, if you think about it. I mean, it's, it's the home of this place that is the longitudinal zero degrees. And if you don't know what that means, that means people go to this place from all over the world. Tourists come to this place, Greenwich, England, so that they can take pictures of themselves with this metal bar that runs down the the sidewalk there, and they can have one foot in the eastern hemisphere and another foot in the western hemisphere. You catch that? This this is the line that, that has divided east from the west. And so you can go here and take a picture and be in both hemispheres at the same time. 
And since 1999, actually, uh, they started marking the line in another way as well. They now have a green laser that shoots up into the sky at night. So from about 30 miles away, you can see where the line is. You can tell where you are in the city and you can say, I'm either in the eastern hemisphere or I'm in the western hemisphere if you just look up to the green laser. Now, of course, that line is arbitrary, right? I mean, it's just a line that that was made up. It was a line that could have been put anywhere. And for many years in history, actually, other countries had their own prime meridian. And, and of course, you know, if you're going to put it in your country, you're going to put it right through the capital city, and, and now you are the, the center of the world, and the world is divided in east and west by you. But, but it got a little confusing, because when people would travel and people would try to go places, they didn't know exactly where they were going. It was confusing to try to agree on what time zone you were in, right? Like, where, where exactly were you in the world, and how did that work? And so 25 countries came together, and they said, we can't do this anymore. This is, this is too confusing. we got to agree on one place. And they agreed on Greenwich, England, being where the prime meridian is. That was in 1880-something, I think. But they came together, and they said, this is the place. This is the place that will answer that all-important question in the world of all humanity. Where am I? Where am I? I mean, ask yourself, where, where are you? I don't necessarily mean physically, right? You're, right now, you're probably sitting in a chair, or if you're listening online, you're, you're, you're wherever you are on, on the internet. But I'm, I'm telling you, where, where are you spiritually? Where are you? I mean, I think in, in life, many of us, we, we struggle with a sense to, how do I answer that question? How, how do I go from, I'm feeling lost and, and feeling confused, right? It can be all kinds of things in life. You can feel confused and lost because you know, you're going through financial hardship and, and it seems like everything's breaking and nothing's working. It seems like all the bills are piling up. It seems like the stress is, is overwhelming. And so you, you feel like I'm, I'm lost. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. Or maybe you're having another conversation with your teenager that's hard again. Or maybe you, you've gone through another miscarriage again. Or maybe you've had another crisis in your family again. Or maybe you've been exposed to the depths of your sin again. Right? The question is, where are you? H- how do you answer that question? And what's interesting is, wouldn't it be nice if God just put like a green laser in the sky? And you could just look up into the sky and, and you could reorient yourself and you can find yourself in God and, and it would just be so simple, right? But that's not how God does it. In fact, God has this really strange way of reorienting us called the wilderness. It's the wilderness. Uh, The author Paul Miller, he has this great line. He says, God takes every person he loves through the wilderness. And if you just read the Bible, it's such a true statement. Abraham, Moses, Ruth and Naomi, David, Elijah, all these people, John the Baptist, Jesus, Paul, Every person that maybe you'd consider a hero of the faith has at some point gone through the wilderness in their life. And I would bet at some point in your life, you've probably been through a wilderness experience. And maybe you're in that wilderness experience right now. And you start asking yourself, what, why am I in this? What is God doing in this experience? How is this forming me? How, what, what is happening here? Well, the answer is, This is the place of transformation. The wilderness is the place where we locate God 
and we locate ourselves. The wilderness is the place where, where you can finally say, now I know where I am. Now I know who I am, and now I know who God is. I, I may have been lost. I may have been struggling. I may have been confused. But now in this place, I know again. I've located him. And so that's what I want to look at today. We're continuing this series through the book of 2 Samuel. And uh, last week, we, if you were here, we, we looked at David's confession of his sin. Right? David had sinned really badly. He, he messed up badly with Bathsheba, then he made it worse with Uriah and killed Uriah. And then David gets caught in his sin. God sends a prophet to David, exposes his sin, and David says, you know what? You're right. I am the man. I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses his sin. God then returns to him grace and mercy and is eager. I mean, God is eager to forgive. God is eager to transform his life and his heart. However, just because he's forgiven doesn't mean there's not consequences. And now we start to see the consequences of David's sin unfold primarily in his family. And what you see is David's family begins to fall apart. And right now, what we're going to look at is Absalom, his son. And in Absalom, you see God do incredible things in, God, in, in David's heart. You see God do deep work in David's heart, but it's through the wilderness. It's through the wilderness. And so that's what I look, want to look at this morning. I want to, I want to focus in on this wilderness theme. And so ask the, asking the question, how does God use the wilderness to deeply transform our hearts. Okay, so if you're taking notes this morning, first we've got to look at the hardened heart. The hardened heart. Now, I told you, I gave you a warning. We're going to cover a lot of ground. So either you're going to have to flip through your Bible or just listen. I'm sorry, but this is the way it's going to work. So we're going to start in chapter 14, and I'm going to try to catch us up. But in chapter 14, verses 27 to 28, this is what it says. There were born to Absalom three sons. And one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. And so Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem, get this, without coming into the king's presence. Now, a lot has already happened by chapter 14, so I'm going to try to catch you up, okay? Absalom names his daughter Tamar after his beloved sister. Now, if you know the story of Tamar, you know that Tamar was also a beautiful woman, and her half-brother Amnon had kind of a crush on her. He, he, he was obsessed with Tamar, and so he approached Tamar and wanted to be with Tamar, but obviously she refused, and, and she says to him, this is not right, this is not good that we would be together, and yet he kept pushing, and he violates Tamar. Now, the word gets back to uh, Absalom that this has happened to his sister that he loves and he's close to, and so Absalom is furious. Absalom is furious that Amnon has done this, and so Absalom goes to their dad, David, and he says, hey, this is what's happened to Tamar, my sister. What are you going to do about it? And David does nothing. David chooses to kind of pull back and do nothing, and Absalom is again even more furious. So now Absalom says, well, dad, if you're not going to do anything about what's happened to Tamar, I'm going to do something about it. And now Absalom starts to plan and plot for two years when he could get back at Amnon, and he finds the perfect time, and he murders his brother Amnon. I mean, this is messy. Now, Absalom knew that that was wrong. Absalom knew that he shouldn't do that, but he was motivated by a, a sense of justice. It was a twisted sense of justice, but, but he, he really wanted justice for Tamar. And he was, he was upset, he was furious that no one else cared about it. And so he said, I'm going to take it into my hands. Yet he knew it was wrong. 
He knew it was wrong. And so when word gets back to David, David's now even more upset. David is furious. How could Absalom kill his brother Amnon? And so Absalom runs and he flees. You following it? He runs and he flees out of the city, out of his family's house, and he's waiting. He's now waiting in a far-off country, waiting for his father to invite him back, and he doesn't. And for three years, Absalom's in exile. For three years, he's waiting for his father to invite him back. And then finally, one of David's men, he says, hey, you can't leave your son out there like this. You've you got to bring him back. You've you got to invite him back in. And so David gets convinced to bring him back. However, when David says, you can come back, he says, you're not staying in my house. There's no murderers at my house. You can get your own house. And so even though he's home, he's not really home. And in fact, for the next two years, David makes a mandate, I don't want to see Absalom. I don't want him to see me, and I don't want to see him. And so for two years, this goes on. It, it, it said there, he, he never came into his father's presence. I mean, Jerusalem is not that big, and if you're in the king's family, you're not going everywhere. It, it takes work to go two years intentionally not seeing your son, intentionally not inviting him back. It's David refusing to forgive. It's David refusing to give the same mercy that he was given by God. It's so ironic. David was, was murdering Uriah and now won't forgive his son for the same murder. And listen, the longer he refused, the harder David's heart became. The hardened heart refuses to give what it's received. Hear that? The hardened heart refuses to give what it's received. I mean, I just imagine as I hear this story, what, what would it have been like if David had acted like the father in uh, Jesus' parable, the prodigal son in Luke 15? You know the parable? The father has, has two sons. The younger son uh, goes off, and, or actually before he goes off, he, he, he messes up with, with uh, asking the father for his inheritance early. And then he goes off to a far country, and he sins greatly. Just like Absalom, he's out in exile. He's out sinning. He's this wretched person, and he's out there hitting rock bottom like Absalom had. And yet what he realizes is, you know what? Let me come to my senses. I need to go back to my father. And when he goes back to his father... He's not rejected. He's not shamed. In fact, he's met with his father eagerly running towards him. The father in the prodigal son story is the one who's prodigal. He, he's the one that goes over the top reckless in his love. He's eager to forgive. He's eager to receive. He's eager to bless. He's eager to say, you are part of the family. I'm going to give you my robe. I'm going to give you my ring. I'm going to give you everything I have. You are restored. And Jesus tells that parable to people who couldn't forgive. He says, this is the heart of your father. This is what it's like to be in his presence. Now, what would have been different if David did that with his son? What would have been different? See, listen, our, our heart and hearts refuse to give because we struggle to remember. We struggle to remember David forgot the mercy that he freely received. We forget the grace that we've received, and so we don't freely give it. 
We forget the radical grace of God to sinners like us. We forget that God has been patient with our impatience. We forget God has been forgiving with our foolishness. We forget God has been kind in our unkindness. We forget God has been generous with our selfishness. We forget that God has been long-suffering with our lusting. We so easily forget that we live in the same place of needing that grace. We forget. And so we simply refuse to give what we've already received. What we've already received. See, before we move on, i got to ask you, what, what are you refusing to give that you've received? What are you refusing? Maybe it's to your parents. Maybe it's to a coworker or a boss. Maybe it's to an ex-husband or an ex-wife. Maybe it's to somebody that, that in your life has hurt you deeply. And you might object. You might say, well, that's God. You know, God has, has forgiven me, and God has loved me, and God is gracious and kind and overwhelming with his, with his mercy towards me, but that's him. That, that's not me. I'm not sure I can do that. I'm not sure I can forgive like that or love like that. Listen, I understand. Forgiveness is hard. Mercy is, is messy. Love is, is not this linear path that's just easy and simple. However, let me, let me warn you from this passage. Let me warn you, the longer you wait, the longer you withhold, the harder it becomes and the harder your heart becomes. But what happens is the longer you hold on to what God has given you and you don't then give it to someone else, it, it begins to rot. It begins to get nasty. I mean, this was just years after David had been so radically forgiven and so radically restored, and he'd already forgotten. And so what does God do to soften our hardened hearts? Well, he sends us into the wilderness. This is what happens with David. And so this is the second point, the softened heart, the softened heart. Now let's move to chapter 15 and pick up in verse 13. Chapter 15, verse 13, it says this, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Now again, let me catch you up. David had been convinced, okay, after two years, David, you need to forgive your son. This is, this is going on too long. And so he, he does kind of like a public pardoning ceremony, right? But everybody knows it's fake. Everybody knows that David was pushed to do that by his political advisors, and so Absalom knows it's fake. So even though the king has officially forgiven his son, Absalom doesn't buy it. Absalom still isn't close to his father. And so now, if you heard that saying, hurt people, hurt people, this is Absalom. Absalom has, has been hurt so deeply by his father, so rejected by his father, he decides, you know what, I'm going to get back at him. If he's rejected me, I'm going to make sure all of Israel rejects him. And he starts to plant these seeds of division among the people. And for four years, I mean, Absalom is crafty. For four years, he just plants seeds of division. And then the people just start to rise up. And now all of a sudden, everybody loves Absalom and everybody hates David. And so he knows he has the popular vote. He knows that if he were to go against the throne, everyone will be with him. And so he takes his moment and he jumps at the opportunity. And David never sees it coming. They start to attack the, the, the palace, and, and David is caught off guard, and so this is what happens. The, the men say, David, everyone's against you, and David says, we have no defense. Let's run. 
They flee to save his life. But listen, listen to where he goes in, in verse 23. It says this, And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron. Here it is. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. The wilderness. I mean, this, if you're reading 2 Samuel, you know that this is the key to the whole text. This, this is the moment that David had, had been uh, needing the whole time. This, this, is, this is David in his formative years had been in the wilderness for so long, and it's what made him the man that he is. And in fact, for, for 13 years, David ran from King Saul in the wilderness. For 13 years, God provided for him and taught him how to trust him. For 13 years, David was in the wilderness trusting that God's timing was better than his timing, right? And so for 13 years, David was in the wilderness with Saul. But now, David is driven into the wilderness by his son Absalom. He's driven in the wilderness by his son Absalom. And what happens in the wilderness? The same thing that always happens. David gets reoriented to God who God is, and who he is. And you see it throughout the next three chapters. I mean, first of all, David begins to pray again. In, in, in uh, verse 31, it says, as he's leaving the, the city, he prays. He says, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now, this is the first time David had prayed in a long time. And up to this point, we're assuming that Ahithophel, who was David's kind of chief advisor, was really the only person that David talked to. I mean, because he had Ahithophel's wisdom, he didn't need God's wisdom. Everything was working. Everything was going well. Everything worked because Ahithophel said to do it. But now David's at his bottom, and he prays. He learns to pray again. Secondly, you see that he owns his sin again. Outside, or as they're moving outside the city, there's this man who uh, starts cursing David. His name is Shimei. And Shimei starts cursing David and throwing stones at David and his men. I mean, he's just yelling, David's a sinner. David's a liar. David did this. Like, he's just recounting all the things that David did wrong. And David's men look at David and they say, hey, you want us to go take care of that guy? And David says, no, he refuses. Look, listen to what he says. In, in verse six, uh, chapter 16, verse 11, David says this, leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. You hear that? David is saying, he's right. That, that's the man I really am. All the things he's saying, I've, I've done those. I am guilty as charged. I am the sinful man that that man is saying that I am. Don't reject him. I'm, I'm receiving this as, as my confession. So he owns his sin again. And lastly, lastly, as they start to battle, this is what David says, the order he gives in chapter 18, verse 5. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. I mean, do you hear that? This is a man who refused grace to his son. And now he's requiring gentleness to his son. What you're seeing here is David's heart in the wilderness has completely softened. This heart that was so hardened in bitterness and anger and frustration and, and coldness towards his son, now, now it's softened. And he says, you know what? Deal gently with him. I don't know how you have a war and deal gently with somebody, but, but David said, find a way to make it happen. Because that's my son. That's my son. David's heart is softened. But listen, Dave, uh, God's, God softens our hearts through hardship. 
That's how it happened. He softened his heart through hardship. Now, maybe right now you're walking through a season of wilderness. Right? You've been anxious about many things. You've been anxious about finances. You've been anxious about work. You've been anxious about uh, your, your conflicts and your relationships. Whatever it may be, you've been anxious. And as, as you're going through that hard season, you're wondering, how can God be in this? How can God be working through this, right? Everything seems to be falling apart. Everything seems to be against me. How, how can God be in this? And I want to tell you this morning, listen, as you're anxious over those things, God is walking with you in the wilderness. As you're battling with bouts of depression, wondering if I can continue to go on or if this is going to work, God is with you in the wilderness, as you're struggling and being exposed in depths of sin that maybe you didn't know were there. Maybe you didn't realize how selfish you were. Maybe you didn't realize how afraid you were. Maybe you didn't realize how self-centered your life has been set up. God is with you in that exposure. He's with you in the wilderness. He's with you. Listen, all of our lives, when we're in the wilderness, you start to realize your life is a complex web of, of complicated relationships and conflicts and my sin and their sin and all how all this works together. But in the middle of that, there's this gift. It's a hard gift, but there's a gift in hardship. It, it reorients you to God. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now, for maybe for months, for years, for decades, you can be stuck in the wilderness because it, it keeps you, it, it helps expose you to things that you couldn't see without it, right? In other words, uh, before the wilderness, decisions worked and life worked and things were easy and maybe there wasn't as much pain. But then when you enter into the wilderness, the, the pain exposes something. There's something about pain that, that teaches you to pray again. There's something about pain that, that moves you spiritually towards God. There's something in that suffering and the hardship that, that can be used for good. Because it's in our losses we learn to lament, right? In our losses we learn to pray, God, how could you allow this to happen? How, how does this make sense in, in the world that you've created? It, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. I don't want this. God, please show up in my life. You learn to lament. See, it's in your sin that you actually learn to confess. God, this, this is who I am. This is what I've struggled with. This is, this is where I've fallen. This is where I've failed. God, I need you to forgive. I need, I need your mercy in my life fresh today. But you learn that in your sin. It's in your worry that you learn to worship. Because in your worry, now all of a sudden you're reminded in the past, of this, this is how God's provided, right? We sung it today. He's never failed you. It may feel at times like he's failing you. It may feel at times like you can't find him. You can't locate him. You don't know what he's doing. But let me tell you, in your worries, it can move you to worship. And you can look back and you say, God, you've been faithful then. You've been faithful then. You've been faithful then. And you were faithful now. But you learn that in the wilderness. You don't learn that when you're comfortable. You don't learn that when things are easy. You don't learn that when you're on the throne like David and living in the palace and enjoying your life. You learn that when you're on the run in the wilderness. Then you start to pray. Then you start to confess. Then you start to have a gentle heart. But listen, there's more to it than that. There's this, this mending of pain and healing. 
There's a man named Alexander White who was an old uh, Scottish preacher in the 19th century. He used to tell a story of when he was a, a little boy. Uh, he lived on a farm, and, and uh, he got his arm caught in some of the machinery on the farm. And uh, because his arm got caught in there, it, it kind of mangled his arm and, and, and damaged it really badly. And instead of taking him to the hospital, because his parents weren't sure what the hospital was going to do, they were afraid the hospital would just say, you know what, cut it off, it, you know, amputate his arm. So they decided to call a friend, a neighbor down the road who was also a doctor, to come over and look at it. And this lady comes over to their house, and, and she looks at how can I treat his arm, and, and she gives them some things to do and some medicine, and, uh, and then she leaves, right? Well, after she leaves, it gets worse. Like, there's more pain, and, and he starts complaining about how much pain is, is happening in his arm. And so his mom calls the, the neighbor doctor back over, and, and the lady comes back over, and she sits down with this young boy who's in pain, and she listens to him describe what he's feeling. And this is how he tells the story. He says, and she said to me words I'll never forget. She said, I like the pain. I like the pain. Now, it's not because she wanted him to suffer. What she's saying when she said that to him is, when you tell me there's pain, that's a good sign that there's life. That's a sign that, that what's happening is, is, is you're feeling again. You're, you're feeling things that are, that are turning, and, and, and it's this pain that's complemented with healing, and the two go together. And he said, this is what you need for healing. There has to be some element of pain for the healing to take place. But listen, God does more than soften our hearts. He wants to heal us in the wilderness. He wants to heal us. He wants to change our hearts in the wilderness. And so this is the last point, and we'll close. The changed heart, the changed heart. Now, the civil war starts to rage on, right? Absalom's uh, men are fighting against David's men, and there's this battle that continues to go head to head, and then there's an unexpected turn. Now, Absalom was known for his long, uh, beautiful hair, right? He, he was this handsome man with long hair, kind of like Samson in the Bible. And Absalom, as he's, he's fighting in the battle, he's riding on his mule through the forest, and his long, flowy, beautiful hair gets stuck in a tree of all places. And the mule keeps riding past him, and so now Absalom is hanging in the tree by his hair. And one of David's men walk up, and, and they see Absalom hanging in the tree, and this guy remembers what David said, deal gently with my son. And so he pauses. He's like, what am I supposed to do? This, this is the enemy. And he realizes, I can't kill him. I can't do anything harm to him. And then Joab, David's commander of the army, he shows up and he says to him, what are you, what are you doing? Well, why are you not doing something to Absalom? And so Joab, just like Joab always does, he steps in and takes control himself. In chapter 18, verse 14, he says this, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. Mission accomplished. Conspiracy over. Victory is David's. Right? Or is it? Or is it? See, now they have to go tell the king that this has happened and they send two messengers one has good news, the war is over. The other has bad news, Absalom is dead. And so they send these two messengers and the tension in the text starts rising. You should read it this afternoon. Uh, and, and what's fascinating is the question is, how is David going to respond? How is David going to respond to these two runners who are bringing news? Well, the good news shows up first. And this guy, he shows up and he says, David, 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 all is well. In Hebrew, it's shalom, peace. 
And David says this, because David doesn't care about the war. David cares about his son. What he says is, is it well with the, with the young man Absalom? Is it well with the young man Absalom? Now, this is a play on words. Absalom, the name is Absalom. It's, it's the father of peace, the father of well-being. So what David is saying is, is it well with the father of well-being? Is, is there peace with the father of peace? And the guy doesn't answer. He, he just says, I don't know. I don't know. I, but the war's over. And then the next runner shows up, a Cushite man. He, he shows up and he has the bad news. He shows up and he says the same thing. All is well. The, the, the battle is over. We've won. And David, again, doesn't care about that. He says, is it well with my son Absalom? And now he gives him the bad news. And he tells him what he thinks is good news. But David responds in brokenness. In verse 33, David says, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This man who, who wouldn't offer mercy to his own son is now offering his life in his place. Do you hear his cry? Before he was saying, I don't want to see him. I don't want him in my presence. Now David is so soft. He's saying, I wish I could die for you. This should have been me. This is my fault. This should have been me that was dying in that place for you. He's completely broken. He's a changed man. He's a changed man. The, the changed heart is a generous heart. It's a generous heart. This is the grieving and generous heart of God right here. You see it in David. It points towards it. It begs for the one who would come. It begs for Jesus, the, the son of David, who would come ultimately to fulfill this promise, to fulfill this desire. And listen, David, David's route out of the city is the same route that Jesus would take. Jesus would take the same route, not to change his heart, because Jesus is without sin, but to change our hearts. Just like David, he would be rejected and driven out of, out of Jerusalem. Just like David, he would cross the Kidron Valley out towards the wilderness. Just like David, when the grief of sin is darkest, Jesus cries out on the cross a very similar plea, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is living out what's happening. He's bearing the weight of our sin, not his sin. He was carrying our griefs. He's carrying our sorrows. He's fulfilling the cry of his father. Would that I would die for you. Would that I would die for you. And he did it. He did it. Jesus once and for all dies for us. Don't miss what's happening on the cross, okay? Don't miss the good news here. Jesus' entire life was one long journey in the wilderness. Theologians call it his humiliation. It means that his whole life was one long suffering. From the womb to the tomb, Jesus suffered. He suffered as he took on our limitations. He suffered as he endured our temptations. He suffered as he lived in our destitutions. He suffered as he overcame our corruption. He suffered as he became sin for us, yet was without sin. Jesus was 33 years in the wilderness to take the place of his rebellious children, yet if he only suffered, we have no hope. See, humiliation with exaltation is no gospel at all. Humiliation with no exaltation is no good news. The good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus entered our wilderness, but that he got out. He got out. As they say early that Sunday morning, Jesus got up. He got up. He entered the wilderness of his creation and he came out victorious. 
The hope of the gospel is not only to forgive us, but to transform us. The power of the gospel is not just to change our heart, but it's to give us a whole new heart. The goal of the gospel is a new life in him. A new life in him. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Lives in you. So that by faith, we, we find ourselves in him. So that our hard hearts can become soft. So that our dead hearts can become new. So that our life can be radically transformed. So that we go from unforgiving and bitter and angry and hard to loving and transformed and soft and gracious. Loving because we've been loved first. That's what the wilderness will do. It's what Christ has done for us. Will you follow Jesus through the wilderness as he transforms our hearts? Right? He invites us into the wilderness. And, and let me tell you, the wilderness isn't a guarantee to change you. What it is, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to, to meet Jesus in the wilderness. The way of the wilderness is the way of surrender. It's to get into the wilderness and say, God, I can't do this by myself. I've been driven here against my will, and now, now I need to find you. And the ultimate answer to where am I located, where, where am I and where is God, is, is this phrase from the Bible. I'm in him, and he's in me. I'm in him, and he's in me. And the only way you know that is if you put your faith in it, right? You, you've trusted him once again. You, you've said, I'm surrendering all the other ways I'm trying to find myself and locate myself. I'm surrendering all that, and I'm going to locate myself in God. I'm going to trust him that I'm in him, and he's in me. What he's done for me on the cross is enough. And it's, it's purchased my life. It's purchased my eternity. It's purchased my place in him. I'm in him, and he's in me by faith alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all the work you have done on the cross, that you were rejected for us. You were driven out for us. You were faithful in every temptation for us. You cried out, abandoned in our place for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we lift you up. You are the one who saves sinners like us. You're the one who transforms hearts that can't be transformed on our own. And so, Lord, we surrender. We surrender our life fully to you once again. We ask that you would help us to find our place in you, that we would not wander around in the wilderness continuing to reject you, but may, may it be an invitation that we would find you there. We would find you in whatever hardship we may be in. We would find you in whatever sin we've pulled ourselves into. May we find you there gloriously, and graciously ready to forgive, ready to restore. May you do it for your glory and our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet this morning.